0: Let's uh, bow for a word of prayer as we begin our time tonight. Heavenly Father, we thank you for tonight once again to be together, to gather around your word, to look at it and to ponder what it says, what it means by what it says, that we might understand what you have accomplished on our behalf through Christ. We thank you for his sacrifice and for accomplishing what we could never do ourselves. We praise you for these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right. I want to return tonight to our study of the doctrine of the atonement Uh, as we have been looking at this over the last several weeks, probably the last several months. And we have learned from our previous studies from what the Bible says that the Bible never describes salvation, at least from God's perspective, as a potential reality. Never describe salvation as something that is a potential that God leaves out there that hopefully he can uh, put on those who actually change their ways. But as we have seen and looked at the terms uh, that we have uh, honed in on in the scriptures, the terms of redemption and reconciliation and propitiation, a term that You don't normally hear anybody use today, but we find it in Scripture. Uh, Those terms are always actual realities as spoken of in the Word of God. They're never potentials. They're never something that is as if it's a bucket filled up, and if I can take a scoop of it and pour it on some, then that's fine, but it's available to everybody. And so if Christ died only for those whom he saves, as we have seen, the Bible teaches through the terminology that it uses attached with the idea of atonement, then we asked this question last time, where did the evangelical church at large get the idea that Jesus died for the sins of every person who has ever existed? And the answer to that question is that the church gets that idea and understanding from verses in the Bible. And you say, well, that kind of seals your fate tonight, Pastor, if that's your argument, then how are you going to get yourself out of the hole? Well, we're going to get ourselves out of the hole because people understand them that way, because in reading those verses, they come away with a faulty understanding. And I want us to look at a few of these examples tonight, as you have been anticipating over the last few months Now I want to say at the outset that most of us, when we were saved, surely when we began our Christian lives in time, obviously we cannot begin to walk by faith when we're not existing yet in time. And yet in time, God saves us uh, so that we are carrying out exactly what he has determined in the past. But if we were asked when we began our Christian lives, for whom did Christ die? I would say that most of us, if not all of us, would answer that question by saying something similar to this. Jesus died for every person who ever existed. Jesus died for every person who ever existed. And we would say that based upon our understanding at the time of how we read the scriptures because our understanding of certain passages in the Bible would have influenced how we answered. And those Bibles contain certain words that seem to indicate that Jesus died for every person. For example, we looked at this In the past, or we have mentioned this in the past, 1 John chapter 2, and we're going to jump around to a few places tonight. But 1 John chapter 2 and verse 2 says that he himself, that is speaking of Jesus Christ, right? We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only but also for the whole world. So right here in John chapter 1 John chapter 2 we have a passage that at least seems to indicate that Jesus Christ made a universal sacrifice. That's what propitiation means, right? The appeasement of the wrath of God for sin that Christ appeased the wrath of God for sinners by means of himself. He was the sacrifice. So it appears from the words used in 1 John 2 that Jesus made a sacrifice that was universal. In other words, it was for every person who has ever been created. That's what it appears to be saying. Let me give us another example that is very familiar to us. Go to the same author, but this time go to the Gospel of John. Go to John chapter 3. Very, very familiar passage for all of us. Maybe even one of the very first verses you ever memorized. John 3.16. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. It seems seems rather clearly on the surface that God gave His Son to the world, and when we hear that term, we think of the whole or the world universally and not just to some in the world. Now those are just two verses of many, many passages that we could turn to tonight, and we're not going to turn to them all. We'll probably return next Sunday night for a few more. But many could be used as examples. In fact, you probably have some in your own mind as you think about the atonement and you go, but that that has a term that seems to be universal therefore, since these verses are the word of God, since they are here in the scriptures, then why wouldn't we just take what they say at face value and move on? Why wouldn't we take them to mean what it seems that they're meaning on the universal side? Because after all, pastor, you have said, if the plain sense makes sense, don't sink any other sense, lest you seek nonsense. And you'd be right. Well, here's why. Here's why. Because of two biblical principles of Bible interpretation that I want us to remember. Two very important biblical principles of Bible interpretation that you must remember. One is one that we've mentioned over and over and over again. You've heard over and over again in Bible studies and and other places. One is context context. Context. That's a Bible principle. It's very, very important. In fact, it is the king of Bible interpretation principles. C- context is the king. The other biblical principle is called the analogy of the faith. The analogy of the faith. We all understand what context is, but I want to I want to give us a, a Webster dictionary definition, if you will, because I think it's helpful. Here's what it says about context. Context is the parts of a written or spoken statement, the parts of a written or spoken statement that precede or follow a specific word or passage. The parts of a written or spoken statement that precede or follow a specific word or passage. And then it says, usually influencing its meaning or effect. So here's words, words written or spoken that influence the effect or meaning of another word by which these other words proceed or follow. So context is the set of circumstances or facts that surround a particular word or event or situation. When it comes to the Bible, context, as I said, is king. Context is king. You have to remember that when you study the scriptures. But what is analogy of the faith? What is analogy of the faith? Analogy of the faith is simply this. The principle that the Bible never contradicts itself in what it means by what it says. The Bible never contradicts itself by what it means, by what it says. That's a simple definition, but I think that suffices, right? That's analogy of the faith. Now, why is that important when we begin to look at these passages? Because, as we have already seen in our study over the last several months, when it comes to the atonement of Christ, we learn from Scripture in context, and according to the analogy of the faith principle, we learned that Christ is redemption. We learned that Christ is reconciliation. We learned that Christ's death appeased, it did appease the wrath of God, it turned away. He is propitiation. So, He, he is those very things. He isn't a potential of those things. He is those things in reality. In other words, his death is all of those things in context. And therefore, since it is all of those things, then the only conclusion that we can have is that if he did those things for everybody, without any exclusion of anyone, then all universally must therefore be saved, right? It's the only conclusion you can come to. If the context and analogy of the faith says that he is reconciliation, that he is redemption, that he is propitiation, then if universally all means everybody without exception, all, then everybody must be saved. But the principle of the analogy of the faith tells us that the Bible never contradicts itself. The Bible never contradicts itself in what it means by what it says. So the principle of the analogy of the faith says that when the Bible says that Christ did all of these things for all or for the whole world, in order for the Scriptures not to contradict themselves, then we have to make some decisions. We either have to redefine the words that we have looked at already, we have to redefine Redemption and reconciliation and propitiation, not in the context for which we understood them as actualities. We have to redefine them to mean what they do not mean in Scripture. And therefore, we contradict what the Bible has clearly spoken of and what we have learned about them. Or we have to think differently about the universal terms, we have to think differently about what these universal terms are saying. We cannot simply do nothing. We cannot simply just throw up our hands and say, well, this is too hard for me to think through, too hard for me to understand, and do nothing, because that just leaves the Scriptures contradicting themselves. We cannot say, well, all is universal, and redemption means what it says it means, and the two are colliding, and they're not... they're not." Uh, they're, they're contradictive and we can't say, well, because I'm human and God is God and I can't understand it all, so we'll just leave it there. We cannot do that. We cannot do that. And since God is the author of His Word and God is perfect, God cannot contradict Himself. And therefore, we have to deal with this apparent dilemma. The question is, how do we do that? Well, Bible study requires that we Think about implications in language. Language has implications. We, we don't oftentimes like to think about that because oftentimes when it comes to the scriptures and we read a principle in scripture, we don't like to think about the implications because the implications mean I got to do something with that. I've got to put those things into practice in every area that it infiltrates my life. Those are the implications of a truth of scripture. Language has implications. Maybe you've never thought about that before. But the Bible, when it comes to the Bible, the Bible normally limits implicationally the scope of universal terms. Words that carry the idea of universal like all or always or never or or. The world, these kinds of terms which we would read and go, well, that must mean each and every person universally. Oftentimes, if, that, if not most of the time, the Bible limits the scope of those terms. In fact, we do it all the time when we're talking and we don't even think about it. We limit those terms. We limit terms like all. When we speak to one another and we say, we, we went to some gathering and we say, everybody came. Everybody came. We certainly don't mean everybody in the world came. We just mean in a context that everybody that we may be acquainted with or everybody we know in our small little group came. Maybe not even everybody in the whole thing that was invited came, but everybody that we know in that group of that larger group came. And so we're talking with our friends and we say, well, everybody came. Well, we're using a universal term, but we are limiting its scope by the context in which we use it. And each of these terms carries with them implications that have to be determined by the first principle, context, context. Now, I I just want to kind of walk through a couple passages tonight and just show us this in action. So I want us to see this principle happening. So go over to Acts chapter 2 because I I, I just want to help us in our own Bible study practices when it comes to these kinds of things, when we come across this kind of stuff in Scripture. Acts chapter 2 and verse 17, and I'm going to read you what the King James Version says, even though I'm working off the New American Standard here. God says in Chapter 2, verse 17, out of the prophecy of Joel, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. That's what it says in the King James Version. Maybe you have the New King James says the same thing. Pour out my spirit on all flesh. So right here we have a term that has inherent universal implications, right? All. The word all is used there. But you notice that the scope of its universal implication is being limited by the words that surround this phrase in the passage. Remember, context. Context is 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 the reality of the words that or phrases that surround, that precede or come after, which bring meaning or bring um, uh, definition to, if you will, this, these terms that it's that it's near. So the scope of this passage is being limited. You say, what do you mean? I mean that the term all flesh here in verse 17 seems in the King James version to indicate, at least on the surface, if we just take the universal term at face value and what it means in a universal sense, that it seems to be saying that every part of God's creation that is living will get his spirit poured upon them. All flesh. You take that universally, then every part of God's created capacity, every part of what he has created, that is flesh will have its spirit. But is that what the context is saying? Is that what it's saying in context? In other words, is one of the implications of this text We think about implications of that reality, if it's universal, is one of the implications that all of those living in the animal world will get the Spirit of God poured on them. They're certainly flesh. They're certainly part of the created beings. Well, that's certainly not the case because God is speaking only about humans. Humans. In fact, some of your translations that you have in your lap have have given you that sense so that you're not confused by the universal term. In fact, the new American standard says, I will pour forth my spirit upon all mankind. In other words, the translators of this new American standard Bible clearly understand the implication of the word all. They understand the limiting nature of the scope of that word all and the desire to communicate that scope according to the context So that it's not misunderstood. So that when you read the term all, you don't think, well, that means anything and everything that is created by God that is flesh. But that doesn't answer all of our questions. Because there's a secondary question that we have to ask. Right? Even if we understand it to be limiting to humanity, to all mankind, Does that mean that it includes universally all of mankind? Universally every human being of mankind? Well, again, the answer to that question comes from context. We can answer that from context because when you read further, you quickly understand, or at least we should understand, that it can't mean all humans universally. You say, why? Well, because just on a historical level, there was a whole lot of people in the history of the world that weren't around anymore. They had already gone off the scene. They had already been created and gone off the scene, even up to the point that Joel makes this prophecy that Peter is now bringing forth in his sermon at the beginning of the church. There's a whole lot of history that has passed in the world, and many of those people aren't around anymore. And so here is Joel making this promise that I will put, God will pour the Spirit upon all mankind and yet much of mankind is already past. So just from that alone we understand that it can't be completely universal without exception of everybody because there's a lot for whom his Spirit was not poured upon. So what does then all mankind mean? What does all flesh mean? Well, it simply means by way of implication and context, all kinds of people, all kinds of people, meaning men and women from many different people groups, just like the analogy of the faith would indicate when you look at other passages and there would be God promising that he would pour out his spirit on people from every tongue, tribe and nation. And that is exactly what God has done. When you read the New Testament, when you read other passages in the Two Testament, you find that both Jews and Gentiles received the Spirit. In fact, you don't have to go far into Acts to even see that the Jews were surprised that the Gentiles were receiving the Spirit of God. And so, when Acts two seventeen says, "All mankind or all flesh," right? by implication and according to the context and according to analogy of the faith, what it means is that the spirit would be poured upon some people from every tongue, every tribe, every nation. And so rather than being strictly universal in scope, even the Bible limits that term by context and by analogy of the faith in scope. It is not universally used for every person universally. Now, why did I start with Acts chapter 2, 17 and verse 17? Because, because these words are normally used in Scripture. This is normal language in Scripture. And Acts is not some special passage. It is not some special thing that you don't see other places. This reality is all over the place in Scripture. And I just want to walk through a few of these tonight. So let me show you one more. Uh, Go over to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. If I can find it. First Timothy chapter six and verse 10. Notice what it says again. I'm going to read it in the King James for the love of money is the root of all evil. For The love of money is the root of all evil. So is it accurate to say that every single evil without exception is In the world, can be traced back to the love of money. Is that accurate for us to conclude that by means of the universal term used here in this passage? Well, if we use the analogy of the faith, and if we go back to the Old Testament and go back to Isaiah chapter 14, In fact, just go back there for a moment, Isaiah chapter 14, because you find in Isaiah chapter 14 a a reference to the sin and fall of Lucifer himself. In Isaiah chapter 14, by the way, Satan's sin is the root of every other sin universally. We don't see The love of money even mentioned in verses twelve through fifteen. In fact, here's what it says: How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the Mount of assembly in the recesses of the North. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to shield to the recesses of the pit. No sense in which the love of money is mentioned there. And yet, 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 10 says that every sin can be traced back. The love of money is the root of all sin. Or take Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3. Certainly the root of their sin surely lies at the root of all other human sins. Adam's the one that we... We're in, we were in Adam when we fell into sin. And yet we don't see anywhere there in the garden that there was a love of money. As First Timothy 6 seems to imply. In fact, if Adam and Eve had money, they wouldn't have known what to use it for. So the answer is there, it's not there. The answer is no. So how are we to take 1 Timothy 6.10 in this universal term. How are we to to take that? Well, we have to take it in context and according to the analogy of faith, right? In fact, we have to take it the way many Bible translators have written it here like the New American Standard. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, You see, the translators understand the analogy of the faith. They understand the context. They look at the context in the original language and they're trying to give us a sense of the scope of this universal term so that we don't think it's every kind of sin has that same root. And so again, the scriptures limit the scope of the universal term all by context and by analogy of the faith. So let's look at another passage that uses a different universal term. Not all. Let's look at another one. Go back to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. A very well-used term by the Apostle John. John chapter 6 and verse 33. And here, John is Quoting Jesus. Jesus says to the people, For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to, here's the universal term, the world. To the world. Now, if we are thinking with strict universal understanding of the term world, then we would have to understand, we would have to conclude that this verse is teaching that all people in the world will get the bread of God which comes down out of heaven and gives life to them. In other words, all people will be saved if if it's universal in that way. They will know Christ. They will be saved. If the world carries the idea of every single person who has ever lived... And if Christ is the bread that gives life to the world, then no one will be lost forever in sin. But context and the analogy of the faith won't allow us to have that interpretation of the word world. It won't allow us to go there. Notice how context limits the scope of this bread, which is Jesus Christ, only for those whom the father gives him. Notice what he says to them. Verse 35, I am the bread of life who comes. He who comes to me shall not hunger. And he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I have said to you that you, that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. Right? So now there's an implication in reference that's tied to the receiving of the bread. And it is faith. So Jesus says, I've told this to you, and yet you don't believe. So you don't have faith. So somebody say, well, that doesn't answer the question. All right. Verse 37, all that the Father gives me shall come to me. Now there's a limiting phraseology to the reality of world that he's talking about here. He gives life to the world. Who is the world? It's all that the Father gives me. The ones whom the Father has elected before Time ever began. Those the Father gives me, and they will come to me, and I will certainly not cast them out. Why? Because I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that all that He has given me I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him may have eternal life, and I Myself will raise Him up on the last day. So even there in verse 40, you have everyone does not mean each and every person. It means only those whom the Father has given to the Son. So the analogy of faith tells us, and context tells us, From other passages in the Bible, that Jesus is not simply the Savior of some of those listening, even on that day, but rather He is the Savior of some from every tongue, tribe, and nation. Even all of those who were here at this day weren't universally saved. So, if it's universal, how does that work? When the analogy of the faith tells us that he is redemption, that he is reconciliation, that he is propitiation. Now, when we began, we began in 1 John 2. I want us to go back to that passage. 1 John chapter 2. <clears throat> Fast, furious, but this is really all I want us to learn tonight. So, 1 John chapter 2, we return to because this is a very important passage, some that maybe even you've been thinking of in your own mind and heart as we have been going through the issues of atonement. Because it says that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins and not ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The question comes that if Jesus is the satisfaction of my sin and not mine only, but also the satisfaction for the sins of the whole world, then how is it that some are not saved? In other words, if this is to mean universal without, ex- without exception, by the words and phraseology that John is using here in 1 John chapter 2, then how is it that some are not saved? And the answer that may come up, we, that many come up with, I should say, is to move the sacrifice of Christ into the category of potentiality. In other words, that Christ is not an actual salvation through redemption, reconciliation, and propitiation, but that Christ is a potential salvation. In other words, to accommodate how they interpret the universal terms used here in 1 John 2, many go against the analogy of the faith principle, and they contradict other clear passages that speak against The saving of all, like I just showed us. Just a few passages that I showed us. And the defining, they changed the definition of those terms that we looked at at the beginning, redemption, reconciliation, and propitiation. And they speak of them as if they are potentials rather than actuals. Now, part of the context when you study the Bible, part of context is to understand just who the author is writing to, who the author of a certain text in Scripture is writing to. And in 1 John, John is writing to Jews, He's writing to those who have an understanding of Judaism, who grew up in Judaism, who knew the Old Testament because it was taught in the synagogue from the time they were born. They heard the the rabbinic teachings from the Old Testament. And the first century Jew fully expected the Messiah and expected that he would be the provider and the provision for the sin of them, that he was their Messiah, that he was exclusively for the Jews. They believed that any person who wasn't Jewish didn't have a chance with God unless they themselves became a proselyte Jew unless they changed over to Judaism. John wrote in his gospel that God loved the world, not just the Jews. John 3.16. God loves the world. Again, he's writing to Jewish people, people who understand and have a Jewish understanding of what it means to know the Messiah. And the point was not that God savingly loves each and every person, but that he savingly loves some from every tongue and every tribe and every nation, not just the Jewish nation. And so what I believe allows for a proper context and a proper analogy of the faith to be accurate here in 1 John chapter 2 is that John is saying this, That Christ is the propitiation for our sins, i.e., those of us of the Jewish nation, and not even that is universal. In other words, not everybody in the Jewish nation. John speaking of himself and those who have a faith like ours, because he even says in verse two, what we have seen and we heard, we proclaim to you also that you also may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the father and with his son, Jesus Christ. In other words, that's where it begins. That's where it's at. Nobody else is in. In other words, if you don't have fellowship with Christ, you're not in. And so he says he's a propitiation for our sins, those who have faith in Christ. And only those who have faith in Christ are those whom the Father has chosen, just as John 6 says. And so he says that Christ is a propitiation for our sins, we who are Jewish believers, and not only ours ours, but also the sins of others from other nations. Some from every tongue, and tribe, and nation. That's what he's saying here by way of context and analogy of the faith when he says, but also for the whole world. So so here's the emphasis that I'm trying to to drive home tonight. I just want to nail this home and then we'll just close in prayer and we'll be done. But here it is when it comes to the atonement. When you're reading controversial passages, passages that cause your mind to go, wait a minute, that sounds like this, and it's about any doctrine, any doctrine in Scripture, but particularly when it comes to the atonement, when it comes to for whom did Christ die, how we understand the terms that have universal implications is crucial. How we understand the term all and world is crucial for our understanding, and have a proper understanding of the atonement. We have to remember context. We have to remember analogy of the faith, and we have to get our understanding of the doctrine of the atonement not not from fallacy-filled arguments. You hear what I said? We cannot get our understanding of the doctrine of the atonement from Arguments that are fallacy filled. Contradictive of what the scriptures teach as a whole. We have to get it from words like redemption and reconciliation and propitiation. We have to get our understanding of the atonement from those words that are attached to what Christ accomplished in the atonement. These are actual things. We are redeemed. We all have been reconciled. The wrath of God has been satisfied. When we get our understanding from those terms, ensuring that while we fully understand how those universal terms are being used in context, and ensuring that we aren't violating the analogy of the faith when we come out with our understanding of it. If we say this is what it says, and yet it contradicts the analogy of the faith where other scriptures teach that it does not, we must be in error. We don't yet understand what we're talking about. We have to understand it under those terms, or we will be confused. Helpful that helpful tonight when it comes to the atonement, as you've been thinking about the atonement, as you've thought about it over the years, have you heard about for whom did Christ die? And you get into these these discussions about Arminianism and Calvinism, and the discussions go there, and they go off on all kinds of tangents and everything else, and yet nobody has some substantive talk about it because they're not defining the terms as God defines the terms and looking at the atonement from the perspective that we have tried to look at it over the last several months from what Christ accomplished when he died. Because when we understand what he accomplished when he died, then we can understand for whom did he accomplish that for. And then when we understand that and we have this analogy of the faith principle in our minds and we come to passages like 1 John 2 that seems to indicate this universal reality, we understand that that can't be the case, that the universal terms are limited by their context and by the analogy of the faith. God does not contradict himself. God never says and has never proclaimed that all will be saved and therefore, there's no sense in which Christ died in actuality for every person who has ever sinned. He's only died for the elect. He's only paid for the sins of the elect. And all of us would walk away from all of that and ask ourselves, then why me? Why me? Why me? And the only answer to that is for the, to the praise of the glory of His grace. That's it. That's our only answer. Ephesians chapter one, God did it to the praise of the glory of his grace, simply because somehow in the reality of his great wisdom, he has chosen to place his special saving love upon some so that those saving people would be a gift to his son, a love gift to his son so that his son would give that love gift to the father so that the father would be glorified for all eternity. And somehow we're swept up in all that. Shocking, shocking, yet fascinating and amazing. Well, next time we get together, I want to look at just a few more of these passages so that we get a, a fuller understanding of, of of some of these that have brought so much trouble to some people over the years when it comes to the atonement. In hopes that when you look at Scripture on your own and you come across them, you will have a better way of handling them yourself. And when you come across others who want to bring argumentation to it, you can bring the argumentation that maybe we've given here tonight and say, this is how we are to look at these things in scripture. I hope that's helpful. I know it's been fast and furious, but that's, that's what I've prepared for us tonight. So let's pray together. Father, thank you for our time here tonight. Thank you for these simple passages that we've looked at. Certainly somewhat. Challenging for us in our own minds as we think about them, yet they shouldn't be. You're clear. You're not confused. You certainly know what you have chosen to do in eternity past. And from your perspective, everything is an accomplished reality, even though you're carrying it out in time with which you have created. So we're grateful for that. We're thankful for what you accomplished in Christ. And we're thankful that we have salvation in him. Lord, may these things help us when we read your word, when we study it. May the principles of the analogy of the faith and context just help us to understand what you say better that we might apply it in our lives, that we might be better, more Christ-like each and every day. And we'll thank you in the end for it all. Because of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.